0: I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here and, and uh, talk to you today. This is my third day in the Frederick community. Uh, we came up here with uh, several of our um, my bank staff on Monday. And um, we do this, as uh, Chris said. Uh, we're responsible for a district that spans Maryland to South Carolina and out to West Virginia. And we regularly spend time in our district because the nation's economy is made up of a lot of little local economies, and they're all very different. Uh, so Monday I got to tour Fort Dietrich and see the f- facilities there and, and tour the USAMRID facility and see some really scary stuff there uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, but um, also some really exciting things that are going on there, uh, some really exciting medical advances. And then and we went over to a business incubator at Hood College and saw... Um, some of the exciting medical spin-offs, uh, biological science spin-offs from uh, the research at Fort Dietrich. Um, we got to, we spent some time in meeting uh, Monday night and Tuesday morning with local leaders, uh, both business leaders, government, uh, education, um, uh, research, and uh, learned a lot. Came away very impressed with um, the growth that is occurring, the economic growth and innovation that's occurring in this community. Um, but very impressed by the magnitude of the challenges that that growth poses for a community like this. This It's a very special place, um, and the the people of Frederick are doing very special uh, and very important things, uh, very innovative things for the country and for the globe, uh, for the entire world. Uh, So it's been a a joy to come here and and learn about the Frederick uh, economy and community very pleased to be with you here to discuss my views on the economic outlook, and I'm going to emphasize in particular the outlook for inflation. Now, a central banker shouldn't have to apologize or rationalize or justify a focus on inflation. It's our primary responsibility. It's what we're here to control. Um, It's the best contribution we can make to economic growth and vitality is to keep inflation low and stable, and that's how we do things. Um, But in case you needed some more um, persuasion, I'll note that in the most recent uh, statement by the Federal Open Market Committee, that's the arm of the Federal Reserve System that uh, sets interest rates and conducts monetary policy, um, the most recent uh, statement by the FOMC identified, quote, the risk that inflation will fail to moderate as expected, unquote, as its predominant policy concern. And this places inflation and the inflation outlook sort of squarely at center stage in thinking about both monetary policy and the economic outlook. And so in my remarks today, I'm going to take a closer look at inflation's recent behavior and the prospects for uh, its future behavior. But I won't be neglecting the rest of the economy, what economists call the real side, uh, employment, growth, housing, and the like. Um, I'll discuss those and in particular, spend a little bit of time talking about the relationship the interplay between real economic activity and inflation, because uh, it's it's an area that's um, uh, tricky to get your arms around and uh, sometimes misunderstood. As always, at this point of re- my remarks, I have to um, give you the usual, it's called the usual disclaimer, uh, and state that these remarks should be taken as my own personal views and not necessarily those of my colleagues on the Federal Reserve uh, Open Market Committee or within the Federal Reserve System. But... This should be fairly clear from my, those of you who followed my voting record last year. So let me begin. To put the current situation for inflation in context, uh, remember that under uh, Fed Chairman Paul Volcker, uh, the FOMC, the Fed, brought inflation down uh in the mid- early 1980s to under 4% uh where it got in the mid 1980s now um just an aside here throughout my remarks today there are a lot of different indexes that you can use to measure inflation i'd be happy to talk about any or all of them later in our you know if you have a question about them but for now let me just focus on measuring an inflation one particular way um and it's uh, an inflation measure um that's based on the the price index for core personal consumption expenditures, so it strips out food and energy, not because those are unimportant, um, but for some other technical reasons, and it's the 12-month, it's the year-over-year year change in core personal consumption expenditures, uh, the price index for that. So that's what I'm going to be using. The CPI, the Popular Consumer Price Index, differs a little bit. we we'll could talk about the differences later, but I just had to pick one to, to cite some several numbers as I go through my talk, and so that's the convention I'll be using today. So under Volcker, uh, F- the inflation was brought down to under 4%. Under G- Chairman Greenspan, core inflation fluctuated between 3.5 and 5% until 1992. But then it fell down to near 2% in 94, and in March 96, to below 2%. Inflation then remained between 1 and 2% more or less continuously from April of 2004. Um, uh, through from March 96 through April of 2004. The exception to that period between one and two percent was several months in the second half of 2001. As as the economy slipped into recession for those months, uh, uh, inflation rose above two percent for several months. But uh, accepting those months, setting those months aside, From uh, March of 96 through April 2004, inflation averaged 1.6% and was between 1% and 2% uh, for over 90% of the time. In early 2003, inflation fell. And for some months, inflation was reported to be, for some months, not year-over-year periods, but for some months, inflation was reported to be below 1% at an annual rate. And this led to concerns about the possibility of excessive disinflation or even deflation, a a situation where the inflation rate's negative and prices are declining on average. Um, This was a concern because of the problems Japan was going through, which were associated with deflation. And, of course, our experience in the Great Depression was triggered by about a very serious deflation, 10 percent a year for three years at the beginning of the 1930s, so deflation is something we want to avoid as well. Our goal is price stability, keeping the average level of prices relatively constant over time. Well, the fall of inflation, core inflation below 1% in 2000, early 2003, um, led to con- led to the FOMC to respond with further interest rate cuts and a statement at the May meeting of 2003 that cited the risk of, quote, an unwelcome substantial fall in inflation. Um, And then, as I said, we, we cut interest rates in June. We reduced our target Fed funds rate to 1%, the lowest it had been in a long, 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 long time. Now, the Federal Open Market Committee did not then and has not since established a formal, explicit numerical target range for inflation But many observers take the May 2003 statement as establishing an implicit lower bound on the range of inflation rates that the Federal Reserve would would find acceptable. So 1% as a lower bound has been taken by many observers as uh, the lower bound of the rates we'd find acceptable. Now, core inflation has risen since 2003. It rose to over 2% for the first time in a long time in April of 2004, and it's fluctuated between 2 and 2.4 percent ever since. The monthly readings have exhibited far wider swings, um, but and the, the 12-month inflation rate has fluctuated accordingly. Um, it fell. This 12-month inflation rate, the core PC inflation rate, fell to 2.1 percent in November. It rose again to 2.4 percent for February, and then the most reading recent uh, reading is for April, uh, came in at 2. Two point zero percent so it 's back down to the lower end of the range it's been in since early two thousand and four the federal open market committee has been looking for we've been hoping for and expecting a moderation in inflation but given the repeated swings we've seen between two and two point four um, it's difficult to be confident about a definite trend right now and in fact the moderation we've seen so far um, is not yet statistically significant you know this the sense of you know how uh, pollsters' margins or there's a statistical significance factor there. So I'm going to come back to that statistical significance factor later on. Um, but one, all one can say with confidence now, let me just characterize it now before I go on, is that core inflation seems to be fluctuating around two and a quarter percent right now, and now happens to be on the low side of that range it's fluctuating in. Chairman uh, of the Federal Reserve System, Ben Bernanke, and chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, testified before the Joint Economic Committee on March 28th, and he said about core inflation that, quote, recent readings have been somewhat elevated and the level of core inflation remains uncomfortably high. The minutes of the most recent uh, meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, you can read these, they're on the web, there's a good sort of synopsis of current economic conditions in there, uh, Most recent minutes state that nearly all participants in the meeting viewed core inflation as remaining uncomfortably high and that the committee members agreed that the risk that inflation would fail to moderate as desired remained the committee's predominant concern. Now, even though, as I noted earlier, the committee has not established yet a formal, explicit, numerical objective or range for inflation, some observers have taken the recent statements Um, and uh, things like the ones I've cited as indicating an upper bound on the range of of desired inflation rates. Uh, Analogous to the way the committee's May 2003 statement is taken as a lower bound on the committee's desired inflation rate. The central question then uh, regarding the outlook for inflation is whether core inflation will moderate to an acceptable rate in coming quarters. Uh, Now, some forecasters are expecting uh, inflation to decline this year and next, and um, many of them link this decline to the expectation that real growth has been weak uh, recently and is expected to to remain below trend uh, for the next few quarters. so i'd like to review now some of the important components of total overall real economic activity, uh, what we call final demand, um, and then talk about the relationship between real activity and inflation. So the the component of total output in the economy uh, that's uh, understandably attracted the most attention lately is housing. Uh, The amount we spend on creating and upgrading, creating new housing and upgrading housing, residential investment, uh, we call it. The recent weakness we've seen uh, since the beginning of OSEC followed a decade-long Sustained growth in housing activity. And that was driven by some very favorable fundamental factors, such as uh, improving prospects for real income growth. Real income growth has been fairly strong. Uh, Inflation-adjusted wage and salary growth has been fairly strong uh, for the last 10 years. Unusually low inflation-adjusted mortgage rates. Uh, So mortgage rates now, you know, in the low sixes. um, And a couple of years ago, you know, underneath six. Fairly low by historical standards, even adjusting for inflation population continues to increase. um, And uh, owner occupied housing enjoys still a a fairly favorable tax treatment. You can deduct the interest on your mortgage uh, payments. By the end of 2005, though, the demand for housing appeared to have been largely satiated in a lot of local markets. Since then, although some markets have shown some continued steady growth, many markets have seen sharp reductions in construction, uh, home sales, and a slowdown in housing price appreciation, and in some areas, an outright drop. Now, the fact that housing data are noisier than usual in the winter months um, is uh, making it difficult to gauge whether whether housing demand has reached a bottom yet or not it's, we're anticipating sometime. I anticipate sometime early this year. Housing demand to reach a bottom, but it's it has it's not yet clear whether we're getting there or not. And it's because this state is more noisy in the winter. It's because housing activity, when you see the headline numbers that are reported, they're seasonally adjusted. And to seasonally uh, housing activity, as you might expect, is much lower in the winter than in the summer. So there's a much bigger seasonal factor that you multiply by in the winter and that's if there's a little bit of noise in the unadjusted number that blows up into more noise in the in the, the overall number and you get shifts in weather you know you get a warm month and then a cold month that shifts the numbers around so they're particularly choppy in the winter months and that's it's making it hard to get a bead on housing demand as we move into the spring and summer sales season uh, the data will give us a much better read on where we where we are in the housing market even if housing has Um, bottomed out, however, we're going to need to work off an inventory overhang of new homes that were built expecting buyers that didn't show up at the end of last year. Um, That home inventory that's sitting out there means that we we don't need to build new homes to satisfy demand at the current level. We can just work off inventories for several months. So that overhang of home inventories, which seems to have peaked, may be coming down, uh, not clear yet, Um, is going to depress new construction. So housing construction is going to be fairly depressed for several months uh, to come. One prominent feature of the expansion housing activity uh, was a dramatic increase in lending to subprime borrowers. Uh, These are borrowers with credit scores below some magic number, 650, 660, something like that. Um, And the, the recent increase in delinquencies, And defaults in this sector have raised some concerns in many quarters about the housing market, in particular about the plight of these borrowers. So this isn't the time, maybe if we get a question, I'll talk about this some more, for a a thorough review of the subprime mortgage market. It's an interesting subject. It would be a separate speech. If you're interested in this topic, uh, Chairman Bernanke gave an excellent speech on this topic a couple of weeks ago and another one yesterday that I'd recommend you read. That's, That's on the board's website. All things considered, though, um, our assessment is that the the macroeconomic effects of recent developments in the subprime market appear likely to be relatively limited. Um, They're not likely to to cause any significant spillovers for the rest of the economy as a whole. There'll be significant distress for some borrowers. There's no doubt about that. Some investors who bought securities backed by uh, subprime mortgages are going to uh, Realized returns that were less than they expected, um, but the, the fallout for the big components of aggregate economic activity, uh, consumer spending, um, business investment, housing construction, seemed to be limited, uh, given the, the overall weakness in housing that we've seen already. I just mentioned business investment spending. That's been an impressive source of strength over, the, over much of this expansion we've experienced since the beginning of this decade, Real spending on equipment and software uh, increased at a healthy 8.7% annual rate from the first quarter of 2003, when the recovery really dates, to the first quarter of 2006, the beginning of last year. Spending on structures, uh, things like um, factories, office buildings, retail space, um, picked up at the end of 2005, increasing 14% in the four quarters ending in the third quarter of last year, from the third quarter of '05 to the third quarter of '06, Business investment faltered late last year, though, uh, and weaker sales of autos and construction materials apparently played some role. Um, but there was a little bit of breadth to the pullback um, that seemed to be uh, related to a, a little bit of apprehension about the nature of uh, the, the potential effects from the housing market. Most of the fundamentals uh, for business investment are still quite positive, however. Profitability uh, in the corporate sector is quite high. Uh, The cost of capital is fairly low um, in inflation-adjusted terms. Funds for new investment are readily available on on favorable terms, so credit markets uh, seem fairly liquid. So I expect uh, and have been expecting investment to regain momentum this year, And, and indeed, we're already seeing some encouraging signs that this is taking place. I'll note that new orders for durable goods, an important economic uh, statistic, uh, have rebounded uh, since February. And manufacturing production is on an upward trend uh, for the last couple of months as well. So it looks like we're seeing that turnaround. Uh, construction spending as well uh, in uh, the business sectors picking up as well. So it, it looks like this, this rebound is occurring. Growth in consumer spending has been another source of strength uh, in this economic expansion. And that growth has been underpinned by solid real income growth during the recovery and favorable prospects for future income growth. Many observers have hypothesized that the drag from weakening housing markets would spill over and dampen consumer spending. And while consumer spending growth has slowed a bit, we just haven't seen a significant spillover from the housing market. Last year, real consumer spending rose 3.6%, and in the first quarter, it increased 4.4% at an annual rate, Uh, likely to come in a little bit slower in the the second quarter, but averaged together, I think we're going to get about 3% for the first half of this year. So consumer spending continues at a reasonably healthy pace. Um, Some observers have questioned the outlook for consumer uh, spending on the basis of statistics that lead them to believe the consumer debt is too high or the consumer savings is too low. Now, I won't argue with the data. It is true that by the usual measures, the way we usually measure this, uh, savings is quite low. The widely cited personal savings rate, uh, where you take uh, measured income minus measured consumption and you divide by measured income, so the fraction of your income you save, um, came in at a negative eight-tenths of a percent for the first quarter. But keep in mind here that the, this personal savings rate measured this way has been on a steady downward trend from about 10% in the early 1980s to about minus 1% now. Now, a number of forces could be potentially at play here. Economists are doing research on this uh, continually. One example is mismeasurement of income. I, sub- I noted that This is calculated by taking income and subtracting uh, consumption spending. But um, capital gains aren't included in income. And the tremendous increases we've seen in home equity, uh, value of houses, even with the recent um, declines in some markets still, housing prices are are way ahead of where they were five years ago. And in equity markets, uh, especially over the last year or two, those strong gains have added capital gains to consumers' balance sheets, And in a comprehensive measure, uh, they really ought to be taken into account. Um, Now, I I understand why it could be attractive to just look at the historical series and say, well, the savings rate's really low, the historical average is much higher, gosh, you know, the savings rate ought to come back to its historical average. But, you know, if you don't don't have a good story for why it came from 10% down to minus 1%, and I'm not sure that I should believe your story why I should revert to historical mean uh, right away, precisely next quarter. So, an alternative perspective on savings and consumption is that the strong recent growth in household spending indicates optimism about future income prospects rather than any sort of fundamental recklessness on consumers' parts. And I think there's good reasons for households to be relatively optimistic. The labor market's reasonably tight, uh, with unemployment rate at 4.4%, and that means uh, that for a lot of people, if they lose their job involuntarily uh, with a tight labor market for, for people with their types of skills, they can count on not having too hard a time in finding a new job. It might not be true for all consumers, but for many consumers, with the unemployment rate where it is, um, those prospects look pretty good. Average earning growths have been increasing, um, have been growing at about uh, 4% in the annual rate. Employment growth uh, has slowed a bit from its average pace of the last several years, but it continues to be rapid enough to absorb the ongoing growth in the labor force that has occurred and the ongoing growth that we expect in the labor force. So prospects for households' real income growth, how their real purchasing power is likely to rise over time look pretty solid, and that seems um, like it would warrant um, household spending at the rate, growing at the rate it is now. Moreover, if you look at households' balance sheets, their net worth has grown over the last couple of years. Um, It's now up to five and a half, five and three quarters, uh, a year's worth of disposable personal income. And it's been rising during this recovery, and that suggests that, again, going back, that savings properly measured um, might not be so low after all. I mean, after all, if you, if you end up with this more net worth at the end of the year than the beginning of the year, you must have saved in some form or another over the course of that year, either by not um, taking capital gains out of the market or, or out of your investments, um, or by not taking investment and dividend incomes out of your accounts. As always, uh, real wage increases, real income growth, tends to track gains in labor productivity. This is the measure economists look at that, that it represents the average amount of stuff people make per hour of time they work. So it's the amount of output the average worker creates per hour that they work. And we can measure this for individual sectors, but also for, the, for uh, most of the economy, for about two-thirds of the economy. Productivity growth was fairly strong in the first several years of this decade. Um, remarkable because investment was low, but in the usual way that Uh, productivity increases is through adding machines and equipment that make people more productive. While productivity growth at the beginning of this decade seemed to proceed more by firms finding new ways to organize the labor and capital that they had. So it was less by adding capital to their workforce than by taking their capital, taking their workforce, organizing it to do things more efficiently so that the average worker could make more. Um, there has been a recent slowdown in measured productivity growth. And Now, productivity measures are a little dicey. It takes a little while. They get revised uh, for a couple of years after they're initially reported. So you need to interpret these with some caution. Um, but this slowdown in productivity growth, if it's going to continue, is going to be a little bit of a negative risk for consumption spending. And the reason is, as I said, Real income growth tends to track productivity growth because, you know, at the end of the day, workers end up getting paid sort of what they're worth and what they're worth to a firm is closely related to the amount of output, the amount of extra things that the firm can produce um, for a given amount of uh, labor input. So if if productivity growth sags a little bit uh, going forward, that's going to, dampen real income growth and that could dampen consumer spending. But on the balance, I'm, I'm expecting consumer spending to remain reasonably healthy. I think that downside risk is not minimal, but small. So about real activity, putting all this together, I expect overall growth to come in below trend for the first half of the year, but to return tr- to trend by the end of the year that's based on my expectation, to just to reiterate, that the housing market, I think, is likely to find a bottom sometime this year and no longer be a drag on top-line growth. I expect business investment is going to pick up. I think we're seeing that. And I expect consumer spending to remain healthy. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, many commentators base their belief that inflation will moderate on their belief that output growth will be below trend for several quarters. This connection is based on a popular, but I'm going to argue an incomplete and potentially misleading understanding of the relationship between inflation and real economic activity. This relationship between real activity and inflation is often described as the Phillips curve. It was named after a a British statistician that discovered this correlation in the data between wages and unemployment. Um, It's typically expressed Uh, in the literature as a relationship between inflation and unemployment. So um, one way of thinking about what the Phillips curve represents is to describe it as a set of options, a set of options that maybe policymakers can choose from, as if to say you can have less inflation with more unemployment. You'd have to take more unemployment to get less inflation. Or you could have less unemployment but you'd have to take more inflation. So you face kind of a trade-off with regard to inflation and unemployment. That's this traditional Phillips curve notion. And I think that's what many commentators base their belief on. Um, They they expect growth to be below trend, and they expect that by itself to bring inflation down. Now, we've, we've been doing a lot of work in monetary economics since Phillips did his original work in the late 1950s. Um, and in particular the the big burst of inflation in the 1970s gave rise to a lot of very serious, um, very path-breaking research in monetary economics to try and understand the inflation process, to understand the role of central bank monetary policy, and to understand this, this relationship between unemployment and inflation. So modern monetary economics has a different understanding than the simple Phillips curve menu or trade-off that I described. The new version, our new understanding, there is this relationship between inflation and current economic activity, unemployment, but expected future inflation, what what people expect inflation to be, is a key ingredient. And that was left out of the older uh, literature on the Phillips curve. And that's being neglected, I think, um, by these commentators that, Um, believe inflation will come down uh, just because growth will be below trend. So this new version of the Phillips curve has inflation over here, and it has it depending on expected inflation and the unemployment rate. But to put it that way, to sort of think of it as a little algebraic equation where there's things on the right-hand side that drive the thing on the left-hand side of the equation, that's sort of arbitrary, right? Right? Because you know from high school algebra you can just flip the equation around and put something else on the left-hand side and something else on the right-hand side. I mean, what what we know, what economics delivers, is that there's this relationship that has to hold. It doesn't tell us that one causes the other. It tells us that what happens, the way the economy evolves, these have to be in this relationship to each other. So... um, To put it another way, we understand now inflation and unemployment to be the joint outcome of the decisions people make throughout the economy, responding to monetary policy, responding to economic shocks, responding to how they expect monetary policy to be conducted in the future, and so responding to how they expect inflation to unfold in the future. And so as they react, the joint outcome of that satisfies this relationship. And so if you go to the data and try and look for this relationship, you'll find this correlation. But, you know, just as it's, you know, it's 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 arbitrary to say one causes the other rather than the other way around. So it's just as correct or incorrect, I'd say, to say that below trend growth is going to drive inflation down as it is to say that falling inflation is going to keep growth below trend. Both of them are sort of equally valid as a matter of economics. Inflation ultimately depends on the actions of the central bank. And those decentralized decisions that bring about an observed inflation rate and bring about an observed unemployment rate depend on the past and the present choices of the central bank and what they expect the central bank to do in the future. And this link to expected future inflation is the key here. So it's it's central banks, not the labor market, that drive inflation down. And this the this aspect of inflation expectations this this element of inflation expectations having an important effect on current inflation is is really crucial is the really crucial difference between our modern understanding of the Phillips curve and and what went before it. So it's vitally important that we understand that expect that link to expectations if inflation expectations are low and consistent. With the reduction in inflation that the central bank wishes to bring about, it's going to be important for us to assure that they don't drift higher during the disinflation process. If inflation expectations have become elevated, then a sustained reduction in inflation is going to require us to bring inflation expectations down as well. Inflation expectations embody assumptions, either explicit or implicit, about how the central bank is going to conduct monetary policy, In the future, the public's understanding, therefore, of the central bank's long run goals and how the central bank would respond to various potential economic disturbances thus helps anchor inflation expectations and helps make control of actual inflation that much easier. And just to provide a little intuition people are setting prices, firms are setting prices, they're going to leave their prices set for a few months before they go back and check their sales and see whether they need to make an adjustment or not. In the meantime, other prices are going to be changing in the economy. Um, If they expect inflation to proceed rapidly, then the money they get in a few months for the prices they charge is going to be worth less than if inflation is lower. So the price they set and expect to keep fixed for a few months until they change their price list, that's going to depend on the extent to which they expect the purchasing power of money to fall while they keep their price set at the rate rate they're setting it now. So if people expect inflation, they can kind of hurry up and try and get ahead of it, and that can cause inflation now. This is the classic inflation dynamic that works really vividly in hyperinflations. You know, Germany in the 1920s and other countries during World War II, and you see this where people scramble to spend their money now and to raise prices to get ahead of price increases they see coming. But it's, it's sort of true at a low level as well. If people expect 1% inflation or 1.5% inflation, they'll set their prices accordingly, and that'll help bring about 1.5% inflation. If people expect 3% inflation, they'll set their prices in such a way that'll help bring about 3% inflation. So that's the intuition for why expected inflation has such an important effect on current inflation. So if inflation expectations are such a key determinant of of the inflation outlook, what do we know now about the behavior of inflation expectations recently? Well, there's a variety of indicators of inflation expectations, but as you might expect, none of them is perfect. Let me survey a few of you, give you a sense of where inflation expectations are now. Survey measures have the longest track record uh, to go on, and that's very useful for economists. The Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank uh, compiles and publishes a survey of professional forecasters every quarter. Their more, most recent compilation was released just a couple weeks ago. Reports that the average, the mean expectation for core PCE inflation, is 2.1% through the end of 2009. So, professional forecasters expect 2.1% core PCE inflation. You may also have heard of so-called blue chip forecasters, a survey. They survey, it's another survey of forecasters. They do this monthly. Their average forecast for core CPI inflation, this is not PCE inflation, but CPI inflation, is 2.4% in 07 and 2.3% in 08. These two indexes, the CPI and the PCE inflation index, are based on slightly different methods. They tend to differ by a, about four-tenths of a percent. It's a rule of thumb. So you take the CPI inflation of 2.4 and 2.3, and that translates into 2.0 and 1.9% for the core PCE, a bit lower than the Philadelphia survey, but in the very close uh, to the Philly survey. Consumer surveys, in contrast, yield much higher figures. Among respondents to the Reuters uh, University of Michigan survey, the median expected inflation over the next year is 3.2%. And the median expected inflation over the next 10 years is 3.1 percent. However, economists typically tend to discount data from consumer surveys in which respondents really have no economic incentive to forecast well. We we figure professional forecasts have a a monetary interest in doing a decent job at at forecasting. So I tend to favor and most economists tend to favor the figures from the professional forecasters. Better yet than relying on surveys would be ideally would be inflation expectations drawn from the prices of traded financial instruments. And luckily we have some. Uh, You can derive measures of expected inflation from the spreads between two different types of U.S. government securities, U.S. Treasury securities. The regular plain vanilla U.S. Treasury security is not indexed for inflation. So when you invest in that, part of the yield you get on a a regular government security is compensation for the change in the purchasing power of money over time. So it's it's compensation for inflation. The U.S. Treasury also issues indexed um, securities. And you can look at the difference between these spreads, these yields, and make a a couple of technical adjustments that aren't big and pull out what financial market participants implicitly expect inflation to be. So you can pull out the inflation compensation from the plain vanilla securities. If you do that, the implied expectation of CPI inflation, because the indexed ones are indexed to CPI inflation, the implied expectation for CPI inflation over the next five years was around 1.5% in early 2003, and it rose to nearly 2.5% in 2004. And it's been trading now around 2.3%. Now, if you go back and do that adjustment again, take off four-tenths for the average gap between CPI and PCE inflation, inflations, translates to around 1.9%, which lines up with those other numbers, um, which, you know, were 2.1, 2.0, 1.9. Another place to look for evidence on inflation trends is the growth in labor compensation. Oh, my gosh. Um, Hourly compensation in non-farm business sector accelerated from about 4% in 2005 to about 5% in 2006. And this is consistent with a broad acceleration in average hourly earnings in the employment report and the upswing in the employment cost index. Now, as I noted before, inflation-adjusted gains in wages and salaries and compensation should and generally do track labor productivity gains fairly closely. And this is sort of the same as as saying that um, unit labor costs sort of the, the, um, the labor cost per unit of output um, should provide a good ch- gauge of inflation trends. Productivity growth was relatively high earlier this decade, as I said, recently it's averaged one point six percent. And as a result, unit labor costs have accelerated and are now averaging around two point four percent over the last two years. Um, if unit labor costs continue to advance at recent rate, either inflation is going to keep pace with unit labor costs or the increase in unit labor costs is going to be absorbed by firms lowering their markups over labor costs. Um, So, you know, looking at that evidence, that looks consistent with inflation at or above 2%. So I I told you about... um, uh, that, that the moderation of inflation is, is uh, I, I mentioned that it hasn't been statistically significant so far. Um, there some recent um, statistical work was done by two professors, James Stock at Harvard and Mark Watson at Princeton, um, and they, they decompose inflation into the part that's transitory and the part that represents a trend, sort of the steady trend in inflation, and they allow each to have its own volatility, its own uh, um, noise level, um, its own variability, I'm sorry. And they allow for that v- variability to vary over time. And this captures the feature that in the 1970s, the variability of trend inflation was high. There were large swings that were very persistent in the 70s. Um, and But then recently, um, the s- swings have been Smaller, So the variability in trend inflation has been much lower lately since we reduced inflation in the early 1980s. They find um, evidence, they pick up this evidence, the trend component of inflation is much less variable since the 1970s. That's consistent with other research. Their methodology implies that the best forecast for future inflation is the current estimated value of, of trend inflation. And they put... Their method puts that at 2.1%, so that corroborates what I was saying about uh, inflation expectations. Their measure of trend inflation has been above 2 since the fourth quarter of 2004, and it peaked at 2.2% in the second quarter of '06. Interestingly, their measure was between one3 and 1.8% for those eight years I talked about earlier, when in, from 96 to 03 when inflation was between 1% and 2%. So their framework provides a natural way to assess whether any moderation in the inflation trends has become evident yet. Their measure of trend inflation has fallen by six basis points only since the second quarter of last year, just six uh, hundredths of a percent. So it's, it's gone from 2.17 to 2.11 percent. Now, given the shape of the probability distribution around uh, their estimates, this decline is just not statistically significant, could easily have occurred due to chance alone. And other approaches yield similar conclusions. So inflation expectations measured you know, via core PC inflation seem to be around 2.2 percent right now. What does this imply for the out- outlook for actual inflation? Well, the current level of inflation expectations is likely to exert a gravitational pull on actual inflation, provided... Provided that monetary policy actions are not inconsistent with those expectations, and no concerted effort is made by us to shift those expectations. So, as long as those expectations remain at 2%, inflation is likely to trend back to 2%. Policy actions at variance with those expectations, for example, if we eased significantly at a time when inflation was elevated or rising would call into question those expectations and would lead to a change in assessments regarding future inflation, and that would have an effect on current inflation. But as long as policy actions appear plausibly consistent with movement towards 2% inflation and nothing else acts to change inflation expectations, that's likely to be the best forecast for where inflation is headed. Could inflation fall below 2%, say, to 1.5%, the middle of this band between 1% and 2%? Well, that depends. Without a prompt fall in inflation expectations, a reduction in inflation below 2% is likely to be temporary and hard to sustain. With expectations left alone, that is, if we do nothing to try to shift expectations, the remaining mechanism for bringing down inflation is the old-fashioned Phillips curve that I talked about. That is, an increase in real interest rates that both slows aggregate demand, reduces real activity and reduces inflation. So that that induces the joint outcome of reduced economic activity and reduced inflation. And that could be costly in terms of foregone real output, foregone employment, foregone real incomes. The prospects for bringing inflation down below 2% thus hinge on the extent to which a reduction in inflation expectations can be brought about. So how difficult could that be? Now, using changes in the target interest rate alone, that process could be difficult and time-consuming. People would have to figure out that we're setting the interest rate at a rate that um, we think needs, it needs to be to induce a, a fall in inflation. And they'd have to sort of figure that out statistically over time. One natural approach to bringing inflation expectations down more expeditiously, should that be our desire, would be a strategy of clear communications about policymakers' intentions. How responsive would inflation expectations be to such communications? Well, general conclusions are are unlikely to be obtained here, and it's because the results of any communications um, depend on the nature of the communications made, the nature of the accompanying actions, uh, and the context in which the communications are received. Having said that, there are many historical examples of significant shifts in monetary policy expectations. The examples include, I mentioned hyperinflations before. These hyperinflations ended with a dramatic fiscal reform, a a reform in government spending policy that that ended deficit spending that uh, was driving the the hyperinflations. Um, And uh, so that's an example of a dramatic change in expectations that occurs and can change monetary policy expectations. Governance changes accompanying, so several other countries have adopted explicit inflation objectives, and some of them have done that and accompanied those changes by with changes in the governance, um, so the mandate of the central bank, um, and those have worked uh, in many instances. And, and, then I, and then I mentioned Volcker's disinflation, the, the disinflation under Volcker that began in late 1979, and that was initiated with a dramatic change in the Federal Reserve's operating procedures, um, and that helped convince market that, there was, there was a, that we were going to conduct policy in a new way. Now, these examples involve fairly dramatic and sizable shifts in the conduct of monetary policy, and we're talking here about shifting inflation expectations down from two to just maybe one and a half or one, and that represents a far smaller change in policy. And so by rights, it ought to be less difficult, in fact, we made the opposite transition just three years ago. As I noted earlier, core inflation was between 1% and 2%. Inflation expectations were down near 1.5%. But since then, since early 2004, core inflation has been between 2 and 2.5%, and expectations have risen to over 2%. Now, inflation expectations shifted up accordingly, as I said. The fact that core inflation spent so recently, eight years between 1% and 2%, suggest that convincing the public that we were returning to such a period would not be that difficult, especially in light of the fact that the committee did not, during that earlier period, announce an intention to keep core inflation within that band. In several recent instances, FOMC actions or statements appear to have induced simultaneous, short-run movements in market participants' expectations regarding the path of the federal funds rate and inflation. These instances um, suggest that there's a certain pliability in inflation expectations in the current environment. The outlook for inflation, then, overall, is that it's to an important extent contingent on the extent to which it appears worthwhile to engineer a reduction in inflation expectations to return them to a level more closely consistent with our price stability mandate. In any event, I believe there's little disagreement about the central importance now of inflation expectations for the conduct of monetary policy and the outlook for inflation. Thank you very much.